Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, many years ago, as my family was moving from Australia to Canada, we stopped in Singapore and we saw some strange sights. And one of them was a big skyscraper that was being built, not with cranes, but with scaffolding on the outside. And the, the scaffolding was made of bamboo. It was very surprising to us. Now think about what scaffolding does. What is it for? What does it tell you? We don't usually use scaffolding many, many stories high up, but when we see scaffolding, we know that the project isn't finished yet. It's temporary support for the building project. And of course, if you're on a work site and the workers are spending all of their time on the scaffolding, making it all nice and painting it and comfortable and installing different things in it, there's a major problem with that, isn't there? Because they're supposed to be working on the building. Because the scaffolding at one point has to be stripped away and the building will remain. Now, in a way, the special gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gave to the early church in the New Testament, they are like scaffolding. They were temporary supports for the building project. And the Corinthian church was so excited with these gifts because they had lots of them. They were so excited, they thought they were so awesome that they were spending way too much time concentrating on the gifts rather than the giver and the purpose for these gifts. And Paul instructs them, and this is a, this is a letter in which he does admonish the church a lot because the church was pretty messed up there in Corinth. They need a lot of admonition. But he tells them that they ought not to look at these special and temporary gifts as if they're in the first place because they have no value in and of themselves. They're useless unless they're used for their purpose, their temporary purpose, which is to build up the church in love. And so we come to our text of this morning, verse 8 begins it, love never ends. And the word ends here means fails. It never it never fails. It never falls down. There is no best before date. You know, if you have a jug of milk in the fridge and you look at the date and the date is five months ago, you don't want to be drinking that milk because it's past its date. Love has no expiry date. The temporary gifts do. And Paul is very, very strong on this. He says the prophecies will pass away. The tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And the words that he uses kind of mean this. If I, use, if I translate slightly differently, he says prophecies will become useless, unnecessary. Tongues will peter out. They'll just kind of stop. Knowledge will end up not being necessary, not being good for anything, useless. Why? Why will this happen? Well, look at verse 9. Remember, when you see for in the scripture, you always ask, what is the for there for? So look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. There's the explanation. Why will these things pass away? Why will they become unnecessary? Because they are partial. 
Their presence means that something is unfinished, just like scaffolding on a building. Then look at verse 10. Because something is coming which is not partial. Something is coming which is complete. And that's the meaning of the word perfect here in verse 10. You know, when we think of perfect, we, we kind of have an abstract idea of perfect as something without any defect or error. And that's part of what perfect means. But the word here in verse 10 is a word that has to do with fully developed, complete, or mature, whole. That's kind of the understanding behind that word perfect. When the, when the whole, the mature, the finished product is here, then the partial stuff will pass away. It will become unnecessary. And because it's unnecessary, it will be useless. And so Paul begins and he ends our text by emphasizing, look at verse 8, look at verse 13, emphasizing that love is what endures. His steadfast love is, goes on forever, as we sang in Psalm 136. And so then Paul gives two examples. Look at verse 11 and look at verse 12. Those are the two examples. And the first example he gives is of children. When children are children, they act like children, and that's good. Children should act like children. Nothing worse than having a three-year-old that's trying to pretend to be 30. That doesn't work. Part of growing up is to be childlike, and so a child acts like a child. The little baby in the high chair tries to eat and is still learning their finer motor skills, and they get food all over their face, and we think it's cute, and we take pictures, and we post them on social media, because it's part of being a child, of learning and growing and developing and maturing. Every time they get a little bit better to find their mouth. But what is cute in a one-year-old or a one-and-a-half-year-old or a two-year-old is not so cute when your 10-year-old is doing that. Then you don't post a picture on social media. Then you go see the doctor. There's something wrong. And certainly not when a 20-year-old is acting in that way. So childlike things belong to being a child. The same way with language. The little toddler, they mix up their words and, and they say words a little bit wrong and we think it's so cute. But if our 18-year-old is mixing up their words, then it is a cause for concern. We need to see uh, medical help. And so these things and these habits of our childhood have their purpose. They serve in the process of maturing. But as we grow, as we develop, as we mature, those childlike things fall away. And Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, look, you've got to grow up. You really have to grow up. You have to stop being like children because that's what you're acting like. You know, you're like that little child. You, you put two things in front of the child. One of them is a, a shiny fake gold coin which glitters and shines and which they can put in their mouth and chew on. And the other is a boring piece of paper, a check for a million dollars. And if you offer the little child those two things, guess what they're going to reach for? Because they're kids. They're little. And they cannot understand to choose the thing that has more value. 
And in a way, that's what the Corinthian church is doing as they run after the temporary gifts. They're so shiny. They're so exciting. And they're running after them not for their intended use, not to use these temporary gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the body, to grow in love, to glorify God, to, to grow in Christ, in fellowship with the believers and the other members, but they're using these gifts for themselves, to make themselves look important, to kind of say, hey, look, everybody, look what I can do. And so... The picture here in Corinth, as they misuse the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is so absurd and so wrong as it would be to see a 20-year-old walking along the street with a soother in his mouth. It's just wrong. Grow up. That's what Paul is saying. So that's verse 11. And then verse 12 is the other example he gives. And he talks about a mirror. This is interesting because Corinth I'm not sure I can draw the map backwards here, but let's, uh, well, I won't try. But, but Corinth, it's on a peninsula to the west of Athens there in Greece, and, and it's on the north part, and then um, there's, a, um, there's a connection, there's a trade route which goes across the peninsula, which goes through Corinth and then goes to another city on the other side. And so a lot of trade, a lot of boats would come, they would unload their wares, they'd be pulled over the peninsula, and then they would go onto another boat on the other side into the water again. So a very busy port, and it had a very vibrant trade in making mirrors. Now, mirrors in those days, even though glass was known, not the glass we have today, but they had some types of glass already in the first century in the Roman Empire, but mirrors were usually made of bronze. They were highly polished metal. And they could be very good. You could have a really, really shiny piece of bronze. You could see yourself pretty well, but they weren't as clear as the mirrors that we have. But there was a big mirror industry in Corinth, and so Paul is referring to something that they knew very well. Now we see in a mirror dimly, and the word that he uses here for dimly is in enigmas. That's the word we get our word enigma from in English is the word here in the Greek in our text. So it means not clearly, not clearly. You've got to try and figure it out. It's not a perfect communication. You, there's some lack of clarity in it. Now, if you open your Bible with me to Numbers chapter 12, you'll see that Paul is not just referring to the mirror industry, but he's also referring to something that happened way back in the Old Testament. Numbers 12, verses 6 through to 8. And uh, the, the context here is Miriam and, and Aaron were opposing Moses. And in that context, God speaks to Aaron and Miriam, and he explains the difference between the way he talks to Moses and the way he reveals himself through others. So Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8 and he said, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, which means face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. And the word riddle here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is enigmas. 
and he beholds the form of the Lord. So that's the difference that uh, the Lord shows his people between the way he speaks to Moses and the way he speaks to the prophets. There are two types of revelation. One is partial and less clear. The, the prophets, they get visions and dreams, and they bring words which are not always totally clear in all of their details. The other type of revelation that God speaks of here in Numbers 12 is the fuller and the clearer, the mouth-to-mouth, the face-to-face as Moses spends time with God on the mountain and comes down and he has all those words that he ends up writing down in the Pentateuch, which is the very word of God in all of its details and all of its clarity. And Moses receives revelation directly from God and he records it in the Holy Scripture. Now think about that. We're so used to having a whole Bible that we can just, what does God want me to do? What does God say about this or that? Well, let me study the word of God and learn from it what God's will is, who God is, what has he done? How does he want me to live? We go to the word. We've got this book which we can access 24 hours a day freely. But think about before Moses wrote the Pentateuch where there was no New Testament and there wasn't even an Old Testament, and so you would have the instruction passed down from your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers. You would have some uh, written manuscripts which spoke about the genealogies and some of the things that the Lord had done in the past, but you had nowhere near the amount of revelation that we hold in our hands. And so often you would have to ask the Lord, Lord, would you send me some kind of a message? And you would have to wait for him to send a, a message in some way through a dream or through a prophet. And imagine the massive change then when suddenly Moses writes down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the people have in their hands the word of God to which they can go to see his revelation, to know his revelation, to know him. And so it's a great blessing, the partial compared to the full. And, and Paul is speaking into a similar situation in the New Testament. Something has changed radically in the history of the world and the history of salvation. The Messiah has come. He has suffered. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended into heaven. He has conquered death and sin. There's a massive shift here. The wall of hostility between Gentile and Jew has been broken down. And there's all this new stuff that is happening. You don't have to be a Jew anymore to be part of the people of God. You don't have to cut yourself and bleed to be marked as a child of God. There's a new sign. It's the water of baptism. There's all these changes, but even though all of these changes are predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, there are so many questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? What does this mean? What does that mean? And how did God deal with that in the early church? Well, they didn't have the New Testament, so what did he do? He sent them prophets. We would be, if this was the New Testament church and we didn't have the New Testament yet, and we're trying to figure out something, and then we would pray to the Lord, would you help us? And somebody would stand up and say, I have a word from God. And he would speak. And then we would know. But that would be for our church. And people over in Ontario wouldn't be hearing that. People in Africa wouldn't be hearing that. So it was very specific for each place and for each situation. It was just bits and pieces of the revelation of God. It wasn't the whole picture. And Paul's saying, look, that's where we are right now. We do not yet have a full, a comprehensive understanding of the revelation of God in Christ. We still have a lot of questions. 
And we need revelations. That's why we're getting them. We're getting prophecies and tongues because tongues speaking was revelatory. They would say things that were from God. That's why it had to be interpreted to uh, be a blessing to edify the congregation. They had words of knowledge. These were special gifts because they didn't have the full Bible. For instance, if one church that wasn't current and that wasn't Rome and that hadn't gotten a letter from Paul about this had questions about meat offered to idols and problems of conscience, questions of conscience, they wouldn't know if they hadn't read the letter to the Corinthians, if they hadn't read the letter to the Romans, they wouldn't know that have to depend on a word from God. And so Paul recognizes that now we know in part, we know bits and pieces, but the time is coming when we will have the full revelation of God when we will be able to know God and his revelation fully as if he is speaking to us face to face. We will be able to know God as he knows us. There will be a time when if we have the question, who is God? What has he done? How does he want me to live? We will have the full revelation of God clearly before us and we will know him through it. Well, let me give you an example of that difference between getting the individual prophecies and so and having the full word of God inscripturated. Think of you're doing a big renovation at home and, and you're one of the oldest children. You're kind of a little bit responsible because mom and dad had to travel far away to the other side of the world to a place where there's not a lot of uh, cell phone access and the and they're in a different time zone, and only from time to time do they manage to send a text if they get a signal, and, and very rarely do they manage to make a voice call, but it's very garbled, and the quality's very bad, and, and you're, you're trying to figure out how they want you to do things and which tradespeople you have to call and how do they want that particular thing resolved, and it's very difficult, it's very frustrating because you don't have the content. You send them a text, and then a day later, maybe you'll get a text back, but they didn't understand what you're asking, so you have to ask again. And then one day, they come home, and they're there, and you walk around the job site together, and then it's easy. You don't have to wait for a text. You don't have to go try and decipher their voice through all the static of a, a phone call from somewhere in, in, in the world, but you can just talk face-to-face, -face, and then it's suddenly a lot easier. And that's, in a way, the difference between these temporary gifts of revelation in the early church and the full revelation of God in Christ in the scriptures. So that's Paul's point. Love never ends. That's what it's all about. The special gifts do end. They're temporary. They will fall away. They will become unnecessary, just like sending those text messages is no longer necessary when mom and dad are standing right next to you. Wouldn't that be strange? You say, well, just a minute, mom and dad, I'm going to send you a text here. Can you, can you text me on this? Why, son? We're standing right here. Why don't we just talk about it? That's the difference between the temporary gifts and the full revelation of God. But when do these temporary gifts disappear? This is the question, and there are different understandings of it when we read our text. A common understanding is, well, they will disappear when the perfect comes. And when we see perfect, we think heaven. Perfect, heaven. So that's when these things will pass away. A lot of people have this position, and it is a legitimate exegetical position, but I think there are 
things in the text which would point us away from it, and I'll show you which ones they are. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. In the Greek, that word now is the very first word. It's in a position of emphasis. Now. And you can use the word now in a logical sense, but usually in the scriptures, in the New Testament, it's used in a sense of time. Now, right now, faith, hope, and love abide. The word now indicates that Paul is not speaking about in the future when Jesus comes back. So that's one thing which makes us question if this comes true in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of days. And there are other scriptural teachings which help us to go along the same understanding. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, for instance. What does Hebrews 11, 1 say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is when you are sure of things that you haven't seen. When God returns, when Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven, our faith is turned into sight. Can you have faith in the new heavens and the new earth? No, you can't. Because you see it. You cannot have the conviction of things not seen because you see them. There's no faith in eternal joy in the presence of God because our faith has been made into sight. Then look at Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Now, Paul talks quite a bit here in Romans 8, 24, but the, the, the summary of what he says in, the, in this verse is now hope that is seen is not hope. And he, he says that in a bunch of different ways in, in this verse and the surrounding verses. But the key is this. Hope that is seen is not hope. We hope for that which we do not see. And when Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven, hope is gone because it's fulfilled. It is now there. You know, keeping hope after the return of our Lord Jesus Christ is kind of like someone the day after their wedding saying, man, I'm really looking forward to my wedding. That doesn't make sense because it has come. It is now real. And so, the word now, plus the fact that faith and hope cannot function in the new heavens and the new earth, would indicate that Paul is talking about something this side of glory. And then if you look through the New Testament, I won't go to all those texts because of time, but there are a number of times that faith, hope, and love appear together in the New Testament in, in a verse. And when they do, they're never talking about eternal glory. They're always talking about the now of the Christian life while we wait for Christ to return. And so the scriptures indicate that faith and hope will not continue on forever. Only love remains eternally. So when Paul says that faith, hope, and love now remain, he must be speaking of now, of the time in which we live as we await the return of our Lord Jesus. So then the question is, okay, if it refers to before Jesus comes back, when? When will the spe special gifts cease? When will they become unnecessary? Obviously, sometime before Christ returns. And we just need to look at the Bible and see what it says. It says they will become unnecessary. They will become basically 
useless. They were just, the tongues will just simply peter out. And we look back in history, and we see that that is exactly what happened. Already in the first century, Paul was warning the Christians that these special gifts are temporary, they're less important, they belong to a stage of immaturity, and they will become unnecessary when the perfect comes, when that which is whole and complete and finished comes. And we look back in history, and what do we see? Well, we see that what they call speaking in tongues today is not the speaking in tongues of the Scripture. The speaking in tongues that we would see today on TV or when you go into certain types of churches is a speaking which is not a language. Linguists have studied these sounds, and they have no discernible form of a language. And this is a very recent phenomenon. It is since the early 1900s when the Pentecostal, the modern Pentecostal movement arose. That's how long we've had these kinds of tongues, which are not translatable languages. It's not like the biblical phenomenon of speaking a language which you haven't learned. At Pentecost, the disciples were speaking, and people from all around the world that spoke different languages, they said, well, we hear them speaking of the, the, the great, mighty wonders of God in our own language. And so there was a, a, a miracle of language, not just a miracle of making strange sounds. That's what biblical tongue speaking is. It's speaking a language which you've never learned. So, modern Pentecostal tongue speaking doesn't fit with the scriptural idea of tongue speaking. When we go back in history, we see that the gifts of healing, the special gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of healing, the speaking in tongues, the special revelations, they disappear more and more as time goes on in the second century. Now, why would that be? Why would they disappear in the second century? Well, remember how you get the special gifts of the Spirit. It's through the laying on of hands of the apostles. And when did the last apostle die? Well, the apostle John was the last apostle to die, and he died towards perhaps the year 100, roughly around there. So if in his final year upon this earth, he would have laid hands on someone and conferred the special gift of the Spirit, and that fellow lived to be 80, then you can expect that maybe the special gifts were, would be seen maybe up to the year 180 or so at the, at the most. And that's exactly what we do see in history. They simply pass away. And what is left? What is left is the full word of God. And that, says the Holy Spirit, is enough. We don't need more. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We've got the Scriptures, and God the Spirit says, that's enough. That is sufficient. Don't go running after other stuff. And you remember Ephesians 4. We've gone to Ephesians 4 a lot over the last year as it speaks about building up the body in the knowledge of Christ and in the love of Christ. And, and what builds up the body? Remember, there in Ephesians 4, Paul focuses on the teaching gifts, the gifts that God uses 
to bring the word of God to the people of God, to build them up in the knowledge of God and the love of God. So that's what we have. That is the complete revelation of God in Christ. What does the Bible say in Hebrews 1? Long ago, and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He speaks to us not through prophets anymore. He speaks to us through Christ. And how does that work? Well, Christ came, he taught his disciples for three years, and then before he left, he said this, I'm going to send my spirit, and he's going to remind you of what I said. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to heaven. The Holy Spirit reminded the apostles of what Christ had taught. The apostles wrote that down as God-breathed scripture. And so what we have in our hands is the word of God. It is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have in our hands is the full revelation of God, the fullest revelation of God that is possible this side of glory. Okay, well, that's a lot to chew on. But why do I need to know this? Like, what difference does it make in my life? Well, let's end with that. A couple of applications. You remember what he said, what the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Stop being babies, running after the shiny things that are going to be temporary, pass away. Well, if it didn't make sense for God's people in the first century to run after the temporary special gifts of the Spirit, how much less sense does it make for us? You know, have you ever said to yourself, man, I wish that Jesus would just give me a dream or a revelation. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just directly from heaven. And he would speak to me and say, yeah, yeah, buy that house and not that house. Or, or, or go for that job and not that job. Wouldn't that be amazing if Jesus would speak to me? Well, yeah, we would think so, but God says no. And if there's a difference of opinion between what we think and what God thinks, we know who's right. God says scripture is sufficient. They had real revelation, special gifts of the Spirit for that time, but a revelation today either will say exactly what the Bible already says, in which case we don't need it, or it will say something the Bible doesn't say, in which case we have no idea if it's from God or from the Spirit of the Antichrist. We don't know. So we're going to stick with what we have. You know, God does not give us gifts to satisfy our curiosity, to fulfill our need for cool and radical experiences. He gives us his word to grow us in the knowledge of Christ, to grow us in the love of Christ. And so we value every gift that God gives to us, which helps us to know him, to know him through his word as it is preached and it is made visible in the sacraments as it is studied, as it is meditated upon, as it is sung. Those are the powerful spiritual gifts that are the highest way because they bring us to know 
the love of God incarnated in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the very incarnation of God's love. Now, that's one thing. The other thing that I wanted to leave with you as we end here is that God certainly does not give the special gifts anymore, but he does give special providences. God sometimes works in mysterious and remarkable ways, and you see it as you read about things that are happening in the Middle East. There are sometimes countries where you can't find a Bible because it's a closed country. It's a Muslim country. You die if you're a Christian, and you read of people coming to know the Lord because suddenly they felt, I've got to get up. They have a dream. They've got to get up. They've got to go to this and this house. And there they meet someone who tells them about the Lord Jesus. And God does work in special providences when there's no access to the scriptures. He's not limited, limited by that, but he brings to himself those whom he chooses to bring to himself. Nothing can stop him. And those, those, those are, that's different than the special gifts. These are not gifts put on someone, which they exercise. This is just God working in special providences. It can happen out there in the Middle East in a closed country. It can happen at the beginning of your Christian life. If you're a new believer, you don't know the word very well. You don't have a lot of contact with the word yet. God can use remarkable, surprising providences to wake us up, to get our attention, to, to nudge us, or even to, to push us in a certain direction. And even a veteran Christian can experience a special providence of God. You ever had that where you're just kind of sitting there and suddenly you think, you know what? I haven't talked to so-and-so in 10 years, but I'm going to send them an email or a card or phone them up. And have you ever had it that they said, wow, thank you. I, I've been praying for something and, and suddenly you come with this word of comfort and encouragement. You're an answer to my prayers. This is God, the Holy Spirit, he knows everything, and he's prompting us, and he's working providentially. That's a beautiful thing, but it is not to be sought, and certainly it is not to be sought to live our lives by. We have all that we need to be complete men and women of God. We have the God-breathed scriptures, the full revelation of God in Christ right here in our hands. It tells us who the Lord Jesus is. And it tells us what he has done. It tells us how he wants us to live. It's all here. If I want to know God better, if I want to know Christ better, here he reveals himself to me. Here he shows me what love is and what love does. Here he gives me a glorious description of how great the Father's love is, that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here he tells us how he has loved us in Christ from all eternity, how he has lavished his love upon us in Christ, redeeming us, washing us, adopting us, giving us a new heart, and giving us new life. Here he tells us how he wants us to live in love and to grow in his love, to walk in his love more and more until one day we are perfectly remade after the image of Christ and we perfectly mirror his true righteousness and holiness. It's all here. And so the message for us, brothers and sisters, is keep the main thing the main thing. You know, there are lots of gifts that God gives, lots of resources, lots of talents, 
that he gives to us to be Christians and to be a Christian church, to, to live for God and to, to worship God. But these gifts and these helps are nothing in themselves. They are meant to lead us to Christ, to drive us to Christ, to make us know Christ because he is the incarnation of the love of God. If we take the gifts of God and we use them apart from Christ and we make them the main thing, if we focus on them and not on Jesus, if we get carried away with the gifts we have, if the, the gifts that he has given us, they fill our field of vision and we just begin to think of ourselves as very, very important people because we do such great things for the Lord. Well, that's a bad way to be going because then the more we think of ourselves, the less we think of God and the less we think of God's people. And when gifts are used in that way, they become useless and they cause pain and hurt and division. That's not the way God calls us to. He calls us to that most excellent way, love, beloved let us love one another, for love is of God. This is what our faith holds on to. This is what our hope waits for, the perfect, eternal, indescribably beautiful experience of God's love towards us in Christ, the love that never ends. That is what it's all about. Amen.